First Peter chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse 14, reading through to verse 17. First Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Let's all hear the Lord's holy word. But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. And God will add his blessing to that reading from his word for his name's sake. Would you bow your head with me for a moment in prayer? Let's all seek the Lord's face. Our gracious God and Father, we turn now to the scriptures of truth, and we are dependent completely upon the Holy Spirit who gave them that they might be preached in power. Give the word in season now, we pray. Take away the tiredness of mind and body that may be plaguing some child of thine. Give that holy attentiveness that only thou canst give. And may there be a welcome reception and a follow-through of obedience to thy commands this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. How to respond to a hostile world is the theme of the passage that we just read, and the one we're taking up once again this morning, how to respond to a hostile world. As Christians, we are indeed living in a hostile world, living among a people who are, by birth and by practice, enemies of God. They are enemies of his law and of his people. Jesus Christ put the situation we're facing very plainly in John 15, verse 19. He tells his disciples, If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Just got to accept that fact. Christ didn't exaggerate. He didn't tell an untruth. He said it plainly. The world hates you. Because I chose you out of the world. You're not of them. You're one of mine. And the reason they hate you is because they hate me. Just before going to the cross, that graphic expression of the world's animosity toward Christ, he prayed to his father in John 17, the world hath hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Point is, the world hates us. You see, there's this war going on between the Prince of Glory 
and the prince of this world. The war started long, long ago in heaven when the angel Lucifer attempted to overthrow the throne of God. It's been war ever since. And that war will continue to be waged until Christ returns and every enemy is... singing Alleluia, while in the same verse, in the same breath, so to speak, John writes of hell, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. Picture the scene. The church of Jesus Christ are singing Alleluia, as the smoke of hell ascends up forever and ever. Eternal destruction of Satan And his kingdom will be a source of praise, of great rejoicing for the saints of heaven. Mark it down. A time of singing hallelujah. But until then, Christ's church is going to have to live in this hostile world. And what Peter is writing about here is just just how God's people are to respond to this hostile world. It's obvious, is it not, that there is a right way to respond to the hostile world and there's a wrong way to respond to it. If we as Christians respond in a wrong way to this hostility we have from the world, then we end up helping the other side. So the apostle is teaching us how to respond in the right way. We saw last Lord's Day that part of responding to a hostile world in the right way is by guarding our hearts against the fear of man. So he writes in the last half of verse 14, Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. That's one of the right ways to respond to the animosity, the attacks, the hostility of this world. In other words, he says, don't be afraid of the things that make them afraid. Show them what would make them afraid and cause them to deny what they profess to believe would not make you do that. That your heart is fixed. Of course, as Peter points out, the best way to guard your heart against the fear of man being troubled by all their threats and all of their attacks is to cultivate the fear of God. And it's something that has to be cultivated. You don't just wake up one morning with bursting with the fear of God. It's something that grows like any other grace in your life. It grows. It grows. It's a grace that grows in the soul. Progress in fearing God. So the way to overcome the fear of man, what they might do to Christians and to the church, is by growing in your fear of the Lord. That's what sanctifying the Lord God in your hearts, he says the next verse, is all about. As that old Puritan put it, we fear men so much because we fear God so little. You can trace it right back to the lack of fear of God. That's why there's such a great fear of man. It's only the fear of God that would deliver a Christian from the fear of man. Only the fear of God. Nothing else will work. Nothing else you will ever do. 
Nothing else any man will offer you will deliver you from the fear of man. It's only the fear of God. So the first matter that Peter takes up with regards to our response to a hostile world is our fear. That's the first thing. Don't be afraid. But he doesn't stop there. There's more to rightly responding to our enemies than simply showing them that we're not afraid of them or we're not afraid of their threats. I mean, we have to take this on board, brothers and sisters. We have to show them that we're not afraid of them. We don't cower in fear at their threats at all what they say they're going to do to us. God has not given us the spirit of fear. It's to come from the Lord. There's no doubt whatsoever that the best way to defend yourself against the hostile world that has nothing good to say about Christians is by doing what Peter has been teaching in the previous verses. Living that way. In other words, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing. Bless those that curse you. Pray for those that despitefully use you. By refraining our tongues from speaking evil, by eschewing evil, doing good, and by pursuing peace. It's how you and I live our lives that we put to silence the lies and the misconceptions of the enemy about what real Christians are about. This is the main way to defend the church against the hostile world. But there will come times when something more is required of a Christian. And that's what I want to deal with this morning. Peter says in the middle of verse 15 that the right response to a hostile world also means this. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Right? Here's the second element in this right response to a hostile world. Be prepared to defend your faith. Be prepared to defend your faith. I guess the question that should be crossing our minds just about now is, am I prepared to defend my faith? Am I ready? Am I prepared to defend my faith? First, there's the need the need for being prepared to defend your faith. This verse is not about soul winning or personal evangelism, as at least in the way those terms are popularly being uh, viewed today. What Peter is telling Christians to do may result in souls coming to Christ, but it's not the point of the text. If you wanted to classify the doctrine in the last half of verse 15, it would fall under the category of Christian apologetics. Christian apologetics. Our English word apology comes from the Greek word Peter uses in verse 15, translated answer. The word is apologia. Just make that G, G, gamma, soft G, apologia, you would read. 
But don't mistake the way that the word apology is used now for the way it was used in the New Testament. This word has nothing to do with offering some kind of expression of regret over something that was thought to be wrong. It's not about saying, I'm sorry. This word has to do with a response to something that is thought not to be true when in actuality it is true. So the Greek term means a defense, an answer in order to defend what is true. It's the same word that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 1, verse 17. You all know that verse quite well, I'm sure, where Paul wrote, I am set for the defense, the apologia, the same word. I am set for the defense. I am set for the answer of the gospel. I'm fixed. I'm going to defend it against all who would say is not the truth. It's also the word that Apostle uses when he first stood trial before Caesar. He's now in a courtroom, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. At my first answer, no man stood with me. The same Greek word, at my first defense, no man stood with me. I was by myself in that courtroom before Caesar. Christian apologetics is a branch of theology that deals with defending Christianity as it is revealed in Scripture. So what Peter is telling these Christians, many of them, many of them, I point out, newborn babes in Christ, is that they need to be prepared, ready, the word means to defend their faith, to have an answer ready. And why does the need arise? Now we come to the need. Why does that need arise? What does Peter say? Because there will always be people in this world, in this hostile world, who will ask you in one way or another why you believe what you believe. Why do you do that? Why are you thinking? Why did you say that? Why are you thinking like that? Why are you behaving like that? It's the question is, why do you believe what you believe? Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. So the necessity is someone is asking, someone is asking what you believe and why you believe it. Peter uses that word hope as just another word for faith. You often find that in the New Testament. What we believe about God and about ourselves and what we believe about the world, according to Scripture. The question about why you believe what you believe may be raised in various circumstances. Some positive and some not so positive. I have no doubt that Peter was speaking especially of Christians being brought before, in that day and time, brought before civil authorities where they would be called into question for something they did or didn't do. 
some breach of the law or custom. Christ prophesied to his own disciples that this was going to happen in Matthew chapter 10. Ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake. That was a reference to the early church. And that indeed did happen. But in speaking in Luke 21 of the last days prior to, these are signs of his return. Christ said they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. Those are last days. So there was and there will yet be times when the laws of the land and the customs of the land in which God's people actually live are going to clash with the clear commands of Scripture. Christians know what their duty is. We ought to obey God rather than men. There's no question about it. I just can't obey that law. I can't follow that custom. It doesn't matter who doesn't like it, who's offended by it. I have to obey the Lord. Because what you're asking me to do, what you're asking me to believe, is contradicted by Scripture. And you're being called into question about that. And that has resulted in and, and will result in, in them being brought into the courts well, where they will in one way or another be asked to defend their position. They will be asked, why do you believe that? What's your reasoning? What's your grounds? Why are you behaving like this? Because this is causing us problems. This is against our law. This is against society. This is against what the majority of society believes and practices. They are brought before a hostile world. And Peter says, we have to be, we have to be, we must be prepared to defend what we believe and why we believe it. You're only beginning to see the surface of things when you find that Christian bakers, for instance, and businesses are being hauled into court because they refuse to prepare a wedding cake honoring same-sex marriage. Hauled into court. And you've got to give a defense of what you've done. Your position of refusing to bake a cake for someone who wants to honor what God says an abomination. You've got to be prepared to do that. Would you be? I mentioned last week a couple of airports in the U.S. where Chick-fil-A has been banned because of their view on same-sex marriage. San Jose Airport. A year ago, they had passed legislation allowing Chick-fil-A to come in, but now, now a year later, they determined we're going to put up the colored flags all outside of the Chick-fil-A and the transgender flags outside the Chick-fil-A. We're going to fly them. It's coming, folks. I'm, I'm not an extremist here. And we have to be ready 
to defend. Ready to answer any judge, any jury, for the stand that we have taken. At other times, Christians may be asked the reason for this hope only for the purpose of ridiculing or mocking them. The question is not sincere. It's so they can poke holes in it and try to make you look like a fool. You and I need to be ready to defend the faith that we say we believe. There are cases, and, and these are the more positive ones, when there's someone who's genuinely seeking to know the truth. And they will ask you what you believe in one way, shape, or another, and why you believe that. You need to be ready to give an answer from the scriptures for your faith. It's got to be more that we know there's a verse in the Bible that says somewhere. More than that. Whatever the motive for asking, the Holy Ghost has certainly made it plain we are to be ready with an answer, a defense for the hope that's in us. Which brings me to the second point this morning, that is the matter. We are to defend the matter. When the necessity is first, now the matter. The hope that is in you, that's the matter. The hope that is in you. Christians are distinguished from everyone else in the world by being in possession of a peculiar hope. They are distinguished from everybody else in the world by being in possession of a peculiar hope. It's a hope that is in them. In them. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.12 that unbelievers are not only without God in the world, but he says they are without hope. If you are without God, you are without hope. But if you have God in you, you have hope in you. This is the hope of which he's referring to. They, the lost, I mean, the unbelievers, they, they have many hopes. In fact, they have many hopes just like they have many gods. But because they are strangers to the true God, they are strangers to this true hope. They have no, no comprehension of what real hope is. But the Christian, and, and it's only the Christian, who has this hope, which is, which is not a hope so, but it is a glorious certainty. That's always the idea of the hope of the believer in Scripture. A glorious certainty. Remember how Peter opened this epistle with that wonderful doxology. He opens the epistle with these words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively or a living hope 
by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what does this living hope entail? To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That is our living hope. Not a dead hope. Not a maybe. A sure thing. That's the hope of every Christian, bar none. Now, it's called by different names in the New Testament, this hope. Sometimes the Holy Ghost refers to it as the hope of salvation, which is being delivered, rescued from sin and evil in all of its forms. Salvation from evil. The hope of deliverance from sin completely. That's our hope. It's a sure hope. It's going to happen. Other times, it's called the hope of eternal life. Not the mere hope of immortality, but the sure hope of holiness and happiness that never ends. Never a cloudy day. Never a break ever in joy. Never a discouragement, never a moment of depression, never a cloud crossing our sky, but eternally enjoying the sunshine of Jesus Christ. That's a sure hope. We have that hope. And I stress that we are called upon to defend that. This is a sure hope that we have, even even in the face of our lack of assurance. Our lack of confidence does not change the certainty of this hope. It's worth pointing out in Galatians 5, verse 5, Paul says that we wait for the hope, we wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. To put it another way, It's the hope that comes from being justified, made righteous by faith without any works, without any performance on our part. It's an act of God that we had nothing to do with. A declaration of the Almighty, you are righteous in my sight. I think that we as Christ's people too often forget this confidence, this hope, in our ultimate salvation is both a privilege and a duty. This firm hope, this confidence, this assurance is a privilege and a duty. Our hope and our confidence is not founded on something within us or something that we could ever do. I know that I must believe the gospel to be saved. But my confidence, my hope, is not in my faith. It's not in my believing. My hope, my believing, my faith is weak at best. 
It's flawed. Anybody here willing to stand up and say, I have a perfect faith? I'm not. How can my confidence, how can my certain hope be based upon my act of believing? Can't be saved apart from faith, but that's not where my confidence lies. I know, according to Scripture, I, I must persevere to the end to be saved. He that endureth unto the end shall be saved, but my hope is not in my perseverance. My hope is not in my obedience. It's not where my confidence lies. My confidence is solely on the merits of Christ and of the free and infinite love of God whose mercy endureth forever. That's my hope. My only hope. My only ground of confidence. All of my sins were laid upon Christ at the cross. All of them. And every last one of them was punished in Christ. Therefore, I can't be punished for them. All of his righteousness and obedience was transferred to me. And I have a standing in grace before God that will never be taken out from under me. I have a standing in grace. Always. It doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter how much I have failed. Nothing can undo and remove my standing in grace. Because it's not a standing in performance. It's not a standing in my, my uh, persistence or perseverance and my obedience. It's a standing in God's grace. You know, I read something yesterday of Spurgeon and his devotion that just thrilled me very deeply. I'd never seen it before. Many times I read the account of the, of the Samaritan the good Samaritan. He was likening Christ to the good Samaritan. Who came to that wounded man. And found on the side of the road. Beat up and left for dead. Spurgeon wrote like the depths. Of the wounded traveler. Jesus. Like the good Samaritan has said of all my future sinfulness, set that to my account. That's what the good Samaritan did. Put him up in that inn, and he charges, put it to my account. That thrilled my heart. Amen. All my future sins, Jesus says, put that to my account. Take the words of H.G. Spafford, if you like. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. No more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. You see, that's where your hope comes from. Real hope lies there. You and I make our lives miserable when we look anywhere else for confidence and assurance, certainty. The Christian, his hope, 
He's confident that he who has begun a good work in him shall perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. His sure hope is that God's grace will be sufficient for him. No matter what he has to face. His hope is that God will strengthen him with all might unto all patience and long suffering. I got to endure to the end, but I'll tell you, here's what my hope is. Here's what my confidence is. God is going to give me all the strength that I need and the patience to endure to the end. <laughs> it's going to be a wonderful time, you know, when we finally make it. When we stand in glory. And look back at all those times we thought, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. And we'll see for the first time so clearly, it was never a question. It was never a question. You were going to make it all along. Christ will say, I saw that. The Christian hope that he has in his heart is that God will supply all of his need, all of it, according to his glorious riches. His hope is that this God will never leave him nor forsake him. His hope is that this God will make all things, all things work together for good. Even the bad things. His hope is that his afflictions are working for him a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. That's his hope. It's not the hope so. Keep my fingers crossed. It's a sure hope. His ultimate hope is for this Redemption of his body from the grave when he will rise again from the dead with a new body and be forever with the Lord. That's the ultimate hope. Oh, I could spend a, a year of Sunday just going through the scriptures to see just what it says about the hope that's in us. The key thing to remember here is that it is this hope that we are to defend before a hostile world. We are be, to be ready to give an answer why we believe this, why we behave like we do. It's because we have this hope. We're not to be silent. When asked for a reason for the hope that lies within. To give an answer is to confess Christ. And if we don't confess him before men, he said he will not confess us before his Father in heaven. But how can we, who have this hope, 
How can we keep it to ourselves when it comes under attack from a hostile world? How can we be silent? When we, when we are asked for whatever reason, why are you a Christian? Why do you do this and don't do that? Why are you so different? How can we be silent? That leads me to my third and final point this morning. The prerequisite for defending your faith. Be ready. The word means prepared. If we're going to defend our faith, if we're going to be able to give men an answer for the reason this hope that lies within us, and that's what we're called upon to do, this is simply the instruction of the Holy Spirit of God saying, here's how you live in a hostile world. You do this. Then we need to be ready, prepared. We need to know what we're defending. To be as Paul was set for the defense of the gospel would require that we know the gospel well enough to defend it. That we know the scriptures well enough to defend what we believe about God and about ourselves and about this world, about heaven and about hell, about life and death, about what's the Christian worldview. That doesn't mean that a Christian must have mastered systematic theology or hermeneutics or the Hebrew and Greek languages. Remember that Peter is writing to many Christians who just haven't been saved that long. They're new believers. Babes in Christ that he says he wants you to desire the sincere milk of the word as newborn babes. Yet look at how he begins his epistle with those great gospel truths that make up this hope. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God through the sanctification of the Spirit. A living hope, an inheritance incorruptible that fadeth not away. New believers getting doctrine like that. This is your hope, he says. Be ready to defend it. Understand it. Know what it is. So you can give an answer. He fully expected that they would learn these truths by heart because they were truths in their heart. In their heart. I said the third and final was actually four. As I turned my page, whoops. The manner we are to defend our faith with meekness and fear. That doesn't mean that we are to be 
apologetic for our apology of the faith. We're not to say, oh, I'm so sorry, but this is what I have to say or do. In that case, you stand unapologetically for the faith that you believe. Without apology. We start from the standpoint that what we believe is the truth. At the same time, believing and are confident that what the world believes is a lie. That's where you start. It's the unbeliever who has it wrong, not the believer. But the truth, the defense, the answer is to be stated and defended in its own spirit, not only in the spirit of power, but of love. Yes. Not only from a sound mind, but from a tender heart. Sadly, many have there been who have set out to defend the faith or their faith, but they have done far more damage than good because they did not do it with meekness and fear. Paul put it like this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Old Robert Layton, choice commentator on First Peter, he wrote this Imprudence, want of meekness, rashness, harshness makes some kind of Christians lose much of their labor in speaking for religion and drives those farther off whom they would draw into it. I understand the desire to defend the faith. It's my desire to defend the gospel. But to rant and to rave, as I have seen some Christians do in their alleged defense of the gospel, it's not done in any sense of meekness. And to me, there's an aberrant lack of fear, of reverence for the Lord. is just spouting off. There's a, white, a right way to expose the truth and the error or expose the error and preach the truth. There's a wrong way to go about it too. And if I end up just driving people away because I have failed, failed to be meek and do it in the fear of God, I have not given a right response to a hostile world. I have just done what they do. I've shown my hostility. And you know what happens when that takes place? 
the hostility only deepens. That's the manner. So it's what happens after the amen now that's going to make the difference. This is our responsibility, and this is our privilege. Let's do it. God read his word on our hearts for his name's sake. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek the Lord together. Father in heaven, we come in Jesus' name now, wanting, desiring, praying for the Holy Ghost to be the teacher, the applier of that truth, how we in our own spheres are to work out this truth in day-to-day living. Save us, Lord, from the kind of boldness that is carnal, that's fleshly, that is purely antagonistic and divisive. Show us, Lord, how we can indeed defend the truth, all the while maintaining a humble spirit and a likeness to Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.